Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. In Season 2, The Asset explains how Trump is trying to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020. Download The Asset today. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy back from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 4th. Today, what constitutional scholars say about impeachment, the NBA star trying to influence foreign policy, and why millennials are turning to astrology. Well, today we had the first hearing in the Judiciary Committee, which is one way of saying we actually had the next phase of the impeachment process. The House Committee on the Judiciary will come to order. I'm Shane Harris. I cover intelligence and national security for The Post, and I cover the impeachment. The House of Representatives and Intelligence Committee has completed. We think it's investigation. They've come up with a report. Now the action moves to judiciary, where they will ultimately craft those articles of impeachment that the House would vote on. The record compiled thus far shows the president has committed several impeachable offenses. The framers provided for the impeachment of the president because they feared that the president might abuse the power of his office. Today's testimony was hearing from constitutional law scholars trying to provide a framework for how to think about the president's acts and the allegations against him. He struck at the very heart of what makes this a republic to which we pledge allegiance. If Congress fails to impeach here, then the impeachment process has lost all meaning. And how the Constitution forms an underpinning for impeachment and whether his actions rise to the level or the standard or the idea that the framers had about what constitutes an impeachable act, which, of course, is a very kind of tough question because the Constitution says precious little about what is an impeachable offense. And so what have we heard so far from them and and whether they think that these actions rise to an impeachable offense? Three out of the four witnesses clearly do. And we should say that those three are the ones that were called by Democrats. The fourth one, uh, while he emphasized he is no fan of President Trump, as he put it, doesn't think that the evidence is there to merit impeachment. But for the ones who think that it is, they are essentially making, I think, a very kind of core argument saying, look, the whole point of the impeachment clause, and Noah Feldman from Harvard spoke maybe most clearly to this that I heard. The abuse of power occurs when the president uses his office for personal advantage or gain. That matters fundamentally to the American people because if we cannot impeach a president who abuses his office for personal advantage, we no longer live in a democracy. We live in a monarchy or we live under a dictatorship. That's why the framers created the possibility of impeachment. If what we're saying is that the president in the course of his duties abuses the power of his office and he cannot be impeached for that abuse, then he effectively is above the law. Professor Gerhardt, What is your view? I, of course, agree uh, with Professor Carlin and Professor Feldman. um, And I just want to stress that if this, if what we're talking about is not impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. 
if this isn't impeachable conduct, what is? And felt very strongly that the impeachment clause was designed for precisely this kind of behavior. When you talk about high crimes and misdemeanors, as the founders understood it in the British common law context, it would be abuse of your office for some kind of personal or political gain. And they see what President Trump did as illustrative of that. This is precisely the misconduct that the framers created a constitution, including impeachment, to protect against. And if there's no action, if, we, if Congress concludes to, uh, they're going to give a pass to the president here, as Professor Carlin suggested earlier, every other president, president will say, okay, then I can do the same thing, and the boundaries will just evaporate. And not only when it comes to President Trump's actions with regard to Ukraine, but also his actions during the course of the impeachment inquiry and to what extent he has complied or not complied with requests from Congress. Exactly. And again, Feldman and others submit this point that by refusing to cooperate, by refusing to let executive branch officials testify before the committees, by refusing to hand over documents, the president is saying, I will not participate in this process, which is the only process that exists in our country for ultimately checking the power or abuse of office by the president. We can't indict him. We know that. Remember that from the Mueller report, that famous Office of Legal Counsel memo, you can't indict a sitting president. That was the big takeaway. That was the big takeaway. And and, and impeachment is the only remedy. So if the president is refusing to comply or participate in, again, this constitutionally authorized, sanctioned activity, then he is, uh, according to some scholars' view, placing himself outside that process and therefore above the law. And that would be an impeachable offense as well. So in this hearing today, did we get a better sense either from these law professors or even from the questions that were asked of these law professors what the potential charges against the president might or will be? Well, definitely obstruction, I think, will be in there. And that's kind of a given. But that sort of feels like a secondary offense, right? This question still remains, will this central issue be bribery? And there was a lot of discussion about bribery, which, of course, is one of the crimes noted. It's it's bribery, treason, and high crimes and misdemeanors in the Constitution. Uh, and actually, Pamela Carlin spent some time as a professor from Stanford talking about bribery or solicitation of a bribe and why that is actually still a crime under U.S. law. Bribery occurred when an official solicited, received, or offered a personal favor or benefit to influence official action, risking that he would put his private welfare above the national interest. So we got some sense, I think, that maybe bribery will go in there. But there is also this concept of impeachment and the high crimes and misdemeanors phrase kind of covering all manner of sins in abuse of office, the idea of an abuse of the public trust, high crimes, we're thinking about it like a crime against the state or a crime against the country. And so I would imagine the Democrats are going to want to be as specific as they can. And that kind of gets you into the realm of the, you know, the high crimes and misdemeanors piece that can cover lots of things. And actually, the Democratic Council was questioning the witnesses, making sure to point out that it doesn't have to be a crime, quote unquote, as in something in criminal statute to be impeachable. But at the same time, you know, if you go down the road of saying, OK, it's bribery, then in the Senate trial, does it start to look like a criminal trial where you have to prove all of the elements of the case of bribery as it's understood in the criminal code versus as it's understood in the Constitution? And that's where things start to get a little fuzzy and maybe politically and legally risky for Democrats, I think. 
So this hearing in the House Judiciary Committee was the big event of today, but we actually saw something pretty major come out yesterday with the release of the 300-page report from the Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff basically laying out all the facts of their impeachment inquiry investigation. Was there anything new from this report? Did we did we learn anything that wasn't apparent from the many hearings and, and depositions and testimonies that we've heard from? For the most part, no. I mean, it, it is very interesting to see it laid out here in, a, in, a, in an argument and presenting the case. And it's very interesting how it mirrors the Mueller report in one respect, where the first part is sort of about the crime and the second part is the cover-up. But there was something new that caught a lot of attention that we had not – uh, uh, seen before in terms of evidence, and that is phone logs that the House investigators obtained, it seems like, from phone companies involving specifically Rudy Giuliani and his conversations with officials in the White House and the Office of Management and Budget, and a mysterious individual identified only by the phone number negative one. Uh, my, that is like the minus sign number one. It was uh, very mysterious. It was very mysterious, and a lot of uh, reminded me of individual one from previous indictments, who, of course, was the president. And there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that my negative one may be, in fact, the president. So right now we're not sure what the negative one number is, but but what what do we know from, from those logs? Well, what the logs show is that Rudy Giuliani, at various key points in this whole story of the Ukraine affair, was in touch with people in the White House and was in touch with uh, some of his own associates. Remember, uh, uh, Igor Fruman and Lev Parnas, these two characters who've been uh, now indicted, as well as a conservative newspaper columnist. And these dates that he is in frequent touch with them all coincide with important moments, such as the firing of uh, Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch in Ukraine. During the period in early August in which the White House was trying to set up this meeting for President Zelensky of Ukraine with President Trump, which of course becomes an element of this alleged quid pro quo. And the weeks before the April 25th announcement by Joe Biden that he was going to run for president, there's a flurry of conversations between Giuliani, Lev Parnas, and John Solomon, this conservative writer for The Hill. And ultimately on that day, there's a column put out by John Solomon criticizing Joe Biden, bringing up all these issues in Ukraine. Rudy Giuliani then has a conversation with Negative One, and a little bit later, President Trump is on Sean Hannity talking about the John Solomon article. So when you put these things together, it's not that it's necessarily revealing any like a new conspiracy or new activities within the alleged conspiracy, but it's giving a lot more detail and just it's just more – I think, powerful and kind of fixing evidence, if you like, that really pins down who Rudy Giuliani is talking to and these key players at these key moments. This is evidence of Rudy Giuliani coordinating the smear campaign and coordinating elements of a quid pro quo between the White House and Ukraine. It's important to note we don't know what was said on these phone calls, but when you look at the frequency, the number of times he was in contact with key people, potentially even the president, around these moments that are the very kind of key events in the impeachment. So these phone calls or these phone logs would theoretically help Democrats build on this appearance of, of who is influencing Rudy Giuliani, who is influencing the president. But also the phone logs revealed something kind of new. Yes, they revealed that Devin Nunes, the ranking member of the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, which was the one that had all of those impeachment witnesses a couple of weeks ago, that he was in touch with, among others, including Rudy Giuliani, this man, Lev Parnas, who is an associate of Giuliani's and who is now under indictment uh, and has kind of this shadowy figure who has played a role in the smear campaign and in Rudy Giuliani's conduct in Ukraine. Um, 
Devin Nunes has dismissed this and at one point he even kind of claimed that he didn't remember ever talking to this man, Liv Parnas. This is really key, though, because the questions about what Rudy Giuliani was doing, what these two associates were up to, these were the matters being investigated by the committee on which Devin Nunes is the ranking member. And wouldn't that theoretically be some kind of conflict of interest? If oh, yeah. Devin Nunes is the one who is investigating this and he was also behind the scenes having phone calls with some of the people who are being investigated? It's a huge conflict of interest for him not to have disclosed that, for him not to have disclosed his phone calls with Rudy Giuliani. Um, at the very least, raises the question of why did he feel he didn't need to do that? That I mean, these are these things are absolutely germane to the issues at play here. And has he said anything so far about why he didn't disclose that? What those phone calls were about? Some kind of explanation? He went on Fox News and said he's known Rudy Giuliani a long time. He has phone calls with lots of people. Uh, he said he he didn't remember having conversations with Lev Parnas. I mean, we have the phone logs. I don't really recall uh, no. that name. You know, I remember that name now because he's been indicted. But why would CNN rely on, on somebody like this? You know, and I'll go back and check all my records, but it seems very unlikely that I would be taking calls from random people. But again, if we're talking about conflict of interest, even the appearance of conflict of interest is something that traditionally people try to avoid. And it raises a whole lot of questions, I think, about Nunes' judgment and why at a moment when the national attention was absolutely fixed on these questions and these events, he didn't feel the need to disclose, hey, I've had phone conversations with people who are at play here. So what happens next in the impeachment process? So next we will probably be moving on, I would think, next week to crafting the articles of impeachment. And is there a deadline for them to do this? Do they have a date set by when they're going to decide what the charges will be when they'll be voting? We think from reporting that the Democrats would like to get this wrapped up and have a vote in the House of Representatives for impeachment before Christmas. So we're talking about a really rapid schedule here. Writing articles of impeachment uh, has only happened a few times in the history of the country. So this is a very rapid timeline on which to do this. All the while, of course, the president will be insisting it's not fair. Republicans will be saying that they haven't been given it. They haven't given due process. But this this train is moving at a fast clip. Shane, thank you so much. You bet. Shane Harris is a national security reporter for The Post. So good afternoon, and thank you for being here today. Thank you to uh, Ennis Cantor of the Boston Celtics for joining us. And to So a day before Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan visits the White House. We've uh, assured each other that Turkey will continue to uphold what it's supposed to uphold. I'm a, a big fan of the president. NBA star and Turkish political dissident Ennis Cantor was on Capitol Hill making the rounds and helping introduce human rights legislation aimed at Turkey. I'm Jacob Bogage. I write about sports for The Washington Post. People should feel very lucky and very blessed to be in this country because, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, there's democracy, there's freedom, uh, there's, you know, the human rights in this country. And, you know, sadly, uh, none of this... Uh, 
Wait, so this is someone from the NBA who is lobbying on Capitol Hill when a foreign leader comes? Yeah, this is a basketball player. He's a power forward. He's 6'11". He has giant arms. He dunks things. Uh, He's very good at basketball. But he's been kind of like on the lam from his home country. He's from Turkey. He's from Turkey. And he's been avoiding Turkey and avoiding the Turkish government since a failed coup there in 2016. He was very outspoken uh, about the way President Erdogan, under a new constitution in Turkey, consolidated powers in a way that Enes Kanter sees as autocratic. You know, it's bigger than myself, it's bigger than NBA, it's bigger than basketball. Because what's happening in Turkey is a human tragedy because all those, pe- all those people out there are just, you know, getting tortures in jails, getting rapes in jails and, 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 and suffering. And so he's used his platform as an NBA player and his long career in the NBA. He's only 27, but he's been in the league for nine years. He's played for like four or five different teams. Who, who does he play for now? The Boston Celtics. And so everywhere he's gone in his NBA career since the coup, which has been like four teams, he's recruited the elected officials from those cities to the cause. So we're talking everywhere from Oklahoma City to New York. So guys like Peter King. I I would have to respect Kent's view. I mean, his family has been persecuted, certainly been oppressed. Are just as much a fan of Ennis Cantor as Ron Wyden from Oregon. President, I have come to the Senate floor this afternoon to talk about a young man named Ennis Cantor. Ennis is a bright and intelligent and soft-spoken guy. Ed Markey, senior senator from Massachusetts. I'm committed to doing everything I can to ensure that Ennis can do his job safely and exercise his right to free speech. I'm going to have Ennis's back. I'm going to be standing with him. He is almost universally beloved at this point um, from wherever he's played in those delegations on Capitol Hill, so much so that he almost has his own voting caucus now. Whenever he shows up and says, this is an issue I care about, at the very least, he's going to get a meeting. And now we're seeing elected officials literally introduce legislation with him in mind. So and I hope this uh, this legislation will pass and then we will uh, highlight all this um, innocent people's uh, struggle. So Cantor, he's, he's from Turkey did he grow up there? At one point, did he end up in the U.S.? So Enes Kanter grew up in Turkey, and he went to the primary school sponsored by this religious cleric named Fethullah Gulen. The Erdogan government blames Fethullah Gulen for inciting this failed coup. He's lived in exile in rural Pennsylvania for a long time now, but they say People aligned with him in the military and the civil service tried to overthrow Erdogan's government. Wait, so it just so happened that this NBA player, that when he was growing up, he went to a school that was run by a guy who is now being accused of trying to overthrow the Turkish government? Yeah, that's right. And the weird thing about it is, and and the basketball is oddly so related to this. So in the United States, let's say you want to play basketball and you're in high school. You go play for your high school, right? In Turkey and a lot of countries in Europe, you don't do that. You go play for a club that is sponsored by a professional team or your local town or whatever. And so as he gets better and better, 
and starts to go play for those professional clubs. Uh, as a teenager, he becomes this elite prospect and then gets drafted to go play in the NBA. So then Enes Cantor, he ends up in the U.S. Does he come here just because it's a place where he can play the highest level of basketball? Or was he trying to get out of Turkey? So when he originally comes here, it's to be a part of the NBA. He's drafted by the by the Utah Jazz, uh, spends a few years there, spends a few years in Oklahoma City, kind of as a reserve developing player. But in 2017, after Turkey's new constitution is passed and uh, President Erdogan starts consolidating executive power a bit more, Enes Kanter's overseas running a basketball camp. And he says some things that President Erdogan doesn't like. And so he's in an airport in Romania. What's up, world? Just wanted to say we are in Romania, and they said they canceled my passport by a Turkish embassy. You know, they've been holding us here for hours by these two police. In the airport, he gets on his phone and records a video uh, and tweets know, it out, in which he calls Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He's a bad, bad man. He's a dictator, and he's the... Uh, Hitler of our century. So The Hitler of our century. Strong language. Strong language. Again, this is a country that back home is in the middle of jailing political dissidents, jailing journalists, and purging the civil society ranks of 80,000 public employees. And he realizes— But his passport just gets canceled, gets in, canceled in the middle of an airport? And kind of realizes after hours pass, I think he was there for six hours, I'm not going anywhere. And so he um, contacted our office. And so he calls Senator James Lankford's office in Oklahoma and says, you need to help me because if they find me in Romania, I'm going to Turkey, I'm going to jail, and I'm not getting out. And so Senator Lankford's office starts waking people up at the State Department so this is literally happening in the middle of the night in the U.S. They get him on a plane back to the States. And when he gets back to Oklahoma City, he goes into the senator's office and says, let me explain to you what just happened and who I am and why you had to do this. And that starts his political journey. And instead of Erdogan making Ennis Kanter afraid at that point, it empowered Ennis Kanter to say, I've got to make sure that I can speak out about what's really happening there because people like Erdogan are trying to silence people like me, and I'm not going to be silenced. So after that whole episode, then he starts lobbying more, that he starts making other contacts with other important people in the halls of power. Yeah. If you're an NBA player, you can probably get five, ten minutes of FaceTime with a congressman or senator. It's what you do in those five or ten minutes that's going to determine if you can have a long-term relationship with them. And what I heard again and again from lawmakers was just how comfortable Ennis Cantor was in those conversations of talking about the situation he found himself in, talking about the situation his family is in. You know, his father was a genetics professor at, at a university. He was fired from his job. Uh, he was forced to release a statement disowning Ennis from his family and apologizing to the Turkish people for having such a son. His older sister's a medical student. She can't find a job because nobody will hire her because she's a cantor. So when he can go into lawmakers' offices 
and in a cohesive and frankly not overly emotional way tell that story and then say, but there are people who are worse than me. And I'm not asking you to support a policy. I'm just asking you don't forget about people like me and keep me in the loop. That's a very low maintenance request with a really high reward for lawmakers. And he knows that and he takes advantage of it. And does he still consider Turkey his home? I mean, I've had this conversation with him and he says, I don't know what to say because Turkey's my home country. My family's there. But then again, my family's disowned me. But then again, I'm pretty sure that they just said that so they wouldn't get in trouble. I mean, he released a video on Mother's Day. Hi, mom. Um, I hope you're doing well. Today is a very special day. Today is your day. Uh, Happy Mother's Day. I'm sorry I cannot call you or text you because of the current situation in Turkey. Saying, Mom, I haven't seen you in five years, but like, and I forget what your voice sounds like, but like, I love you and hang in there and this won't be forever. And so he's, right now, he is legitimately stateless, but by 2021, he will be an American citizen, but that won't stop his work on behalf of what he feels is a better Turkey. Because these people that these these lawmakers that he has relationships with, they're both Republicans and Democrats. And it feels like, especially now, there are so few things that Republicans and Democrats agree on, the type of people that they both want to sort of curry favor with. So is that what it takes, like to get Republicans and Democrats to see eye to eye on a very important part of U.S. policy that you just need a basketball player to come in? Yes and no. The basketball player part of it helps. We're in a a period right now where we consistently question what an athlete's role is in political discourse. Freedom of expression, democracy, human rights in the Middle East is not necessarily a wedge issue. And so when Ennis Cantor comes into Capitol Hill and says, don't forget about people like me and my family, it's not hard for a Republican to lean over to a Democrat and say, I like this guy. And it's not hard for a Democrat to look back and say, yeah, let's get together on this. Jacob, thank you so much. Thanks. Jacob Bogage is a sports reporter for The Post. Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. And now, one more thing. So, I'm Maura Judkis. I'm a reporter for the Style section, and I'm about to read my daily horoscope on The Pattern, which is an astrology app. Maura is one of those people that's recently gotten very into her horoscopes. Today, (laughs) this one's pretty good. You want your words to impress others, but you may not feel received or heard as if they're not paying attention or listening. (laughs) I guess no one's going to listen. I don't know. I hope you're listening. Thanks, guys. (laughs) I had noticed that a lot of 
my friends and a lot of millennials were getting into astrology, like in a way that I hadn't seen recently. You know, people always kind of read their horoscopes in magazines or in the newspaper, but there are so many apps and they go really, really in depth. Like it's not just your sun sign, which is the like, what's your sign sign that everyone knows. It goes into your moon sign, your rising sign, all of the different houses of your chart. It's It gets very in depth. And I noticed a little bit like self-help in a way, because there's actually a connection between the sort of chaos of our planet right now and and a move towards people being interested in astrology. Historically, researchers who study this say that there's a correlation every time there's kind of like political tumult. People sort of look for a higher explanation from some other force or power. And so, you know, the last time we saw people getting into astrology was the 60s and 70s. It's always been there, but there's no coincidence, I think, that that politics are crazy right now, that people are really worried about the future of this planet and that they are looking to astrology. And, um, you know, I think the difference this time, too, is that a lot of people are also very scientifically oriented. And so it's really more of a fun thing for them. It's not actually replacing any belief system for, I would say, the bulk of these users. Maura Judkiss is a culture reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you've got thoughts about a story that you've heard on a recent episode, share them on Twitter. Use the hashtag PostReports or tag me. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. In Season 2, The Asset explains how Trump is trying to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020. Download The Asset today.